Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from ATP Crypto. I'm talking to Simon Dixon. Simon is the CEO and co-founder of Bank to the Future, author of a book by the same name, Bank to the Future, which we'll talk about a little bit, and also a fintech angel investor. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this one. I've been going through a bit of your content in anticipation, so uh, you've been doing some great work. Thank you. I, God, I really appreciate that. Um, it's nice to hear. You've been involved in sort of the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain space for longer than most people that I know, right? So you kind of left your job back in 2006 after working in the financial markets for a while. I'm curious, and I think people that are listening are curious too, is what was the trigger for you? In other words, what did you know? What did you learn at the beginning that said, I think I really need to focus on this because this is no pun intended, but this is the future. Okay. Yeah. So, so for me, my, I mean, my, my, my background story is I was working as a trader and, you know, fresh, I, I did a stockbroker fresh from university, then a couple of years as a market maker. Um, and then I was working on IPAs in uh, corporate finance. Right. Um, and I, I, at, at university, I, I did a, a master's in economics and I left very unsatisfied with um, what I had learned and what I was studying. Um, but then I got, you know, kind of back in, into corporate and focused on my career. Um, then in, in around about 2006, I, I really started uh, getting back into economics. And um, that that led me to really digging deep into the subject of money and realizing that very few people actually have a, a good understanding of what money is. We all, we all use it. We all understand it. But very people, very few people actually understand what it is. Um, and, and this led to me writing like a series of papers that I put together into a book in 2006. Um, and uh, that was on really geeky, actually. It was on systemic risk in banking and it was on monetary policy. Um, and it, w- it was pretty hard and very disinteresting for people to read, uh, <laughs> I'd say, at the time. I, I, remember, um, I remember taking a course in university called Money and Banking and thinking – yeah, this is really going to be hard for most people to read. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at the time, it was really focused on that. And then um, uh, the financial crisis happened, and that kind of changed everything because people were, were became interested in the subject. Right. Um, and uh, I was doing a lot of um, talks at the time. I was speaking around at lots of different universities and um, and the financial crisis, I would say, w- w- kind of propelled my my message um and then i i I started refining the message and then wrote wrote the the actual first draft of the book that was actually published for bank to the future um and and try to add a bit of fiction and make it easy to read for anyone that doesn't understand these subjects um what was the what was the premise of it and actually you said something earlier which was interesting that you were really dissatisfied with what you had learned i just find that really interesting what was the dissatisfaction um, the dissatisfaction was that every economic model that we use to run our economy and all the different schools of thoughts um, are built upon an assumption about money that I don't see that I didn't see to be true. Um, they paint um, money and, and how it's actually created um, as you know. Firstly, they they say that banks are an intermediary between borrower and lender, right. and that's how most people see um, money. Um, and they see it as like this piggy bank where everything's, um, you know, backed and the central bank creates this money 
um, and then somehow it sits in a bank and, you know, pensioners are, are uh, receiving interest and that money's being lent out to people. Um, and that's most people's understanding of banking. Um, right. Then it goes into another understanding. If you go, if you go a layer deeper, you, you, you start to learn things about multiplier effects and right. fractional reserve banking. Um, and, uh, you know, reserve ratios. Um, and, and th- at this point, it gets really geeky beyond what most people are interested in. Right. Velocity um, of money and all this stuff. Sure. But when you go one step further, which is what we actually did, um, and, uh, you know, that's what I was interested in at the time, you realize that most of these multiplier effects, fractional reserve ratios and um, reserve requirements, none of them actually exist. Um, and they've all been kind of uh, changed and loopholed over time um, as the banking model has actually evolved where, you know, investment banking and retail banking and financial engineering is all used as a tool to circumvent all of these controls that people think actually exist. Right. So, you know, a classic example is people think that there's a reserve requirement um, and banks can multiply deposits many times over. Um, and there's a fraction that has to be has to be held on reserve. But when you actually dig deep into what that fraction held on reserve is, you realize that it was actually um, you know its assets rather than actually cash. And that asset was actually you know created the same way money was created and rehypothecated. And then you use the investment bank's balance sheet in order to get around any reserve requirements and and leverage many times over. And so all of these products and all of this. Um, you know, and, and it, you can go really, really, really deep, and I did at the time. Um, you realize that none of the, the models that we use as a foundation layer to model our entire economy are, are actually very far from reality and, and how it actually works. And so when I actually worked at the bank and the financial institution, I, I got firsthand experience of, well, you know, when I was a market maker, all I was doing was market making, and, uh, and, and right. I understood one one tiny part of the area. You know, when I was in corporate finance, you know, we had to spend ninety to a hundred hours um, a week uh, trying to get an, an IPO through. There was no time to comprehend the implications of how your tiny little piece of, of cog in in, in, a, in a big ecosystem actually affects everything. So that was that was when in two thousand and six, I, I just decided to um, quit corporate. I was young. I had no responsibilities. I had I had enough money, and just decided to focus on on what was interesting to me. So, started talking a lot on on this subject of money, um, and and really trying to condense it down to something that people could actually understood. Uh, sorry, could understand. Um, and uh, that that kind of led me to one day getting a, a Facebook message. I, I still remember it to this hmm. day uh, from a guy called Jonathan James Harrison. And uh, Jonathan had sold his house and everything he owned and was homeless, literally, um, and uh, was staying in a squat in Old Street in London okay. with some of the with some of the core deve- some of the very early developers on Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm um, guessing. I'm guessing he's not homeless anymore. He's not homeless anymore. He's a he's a very wealthy angel investor. But can I ask you know, this though? When you started explaining, because this, this look, this whole concept of because basically what you're saying is all of this stuff that the foundation of money as we understand it is built on isn't really there, right? The whole concept of a reserve ratio means that you know the banks are supposed to have sort of money set aside, and then you know the central <clears throat> the central bankers are meant to monitor all this stuff, and then you can mon- you know, multiply the growth of money in a certain way. But the reality is that the investment banks go out and create 
um, you know, the, all these sort of derivative products that go out and completely go around all of those regulations and come up with a way that just blows up the entire monetary system. And this is something that I like to say directly as opposed to expl- ex- explicitly. And when I talk to people about it, they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm presuming back in 2006, before you met um, Jonathan, that there was some reaction to you that was not so positive. Is that, you think, is that fair? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, there was, uh, would, so I, I explained, I, I've kind of sit down to three very simple um, trends in banking now, and, and I'll, I'll, we'll go through those if we, if we yeah, want. Yeah, please um, do. Um, so when I'm explaining the difference between, say, Bitcoin and banking, um, I, I, I like to let people know three three things that sometimes they don't know, sometimes they do, or sometimes they haven't comprehended the consequences. Right. Um, the first is that when you deposit your money at a bank, a bank deposit is legally the property of the bank. So the reason that you can have a bail-in um, where the banks repossess people's deposits in order to bail, you know, in order to um, help the bank, is because they actually legally own the money. It's no longer your money. Um, we see this very often in, in in Bitcoin as well. When when people, you know, when you look at case studies like the Mount Gox hack. Right, um, right. What essentially you have done is you've used Mt. Gox and exchange as a bank. You gave them your Bitcoin to look after you. And th- at that point, it is their Bitcoin. Um, and so if they dis- if they get hacked or it gets lost or anything, then um, it's no longer your money. And so that's the same with bank deposits. It's legally their money. It's on their balance sheet as, as, as a bank asset. Right. So you think it's your money, but you don't, if your money is in online banking, it's not your money. They just promise to give it to you, and it requires faith in the system that they're going to actually give that they're going to allow you to gain access to it. Right. Um, with Bitcoin, it's you actually own it, um, and that's a very hard concept for people to understand. But we all have a very good case study that we can use, and it's called cash. Um, you know, when you have money in your pocket, that cash is yours. It can be stolen. It can be seized. Um, it, but it's actually your asset. You can hide that. You can. It's actually yours. You have complete 100% ownership over it. It's unregistered, um, and it's your it's your money. So that's why you know many countries that don't have too much faith in their governments. You know, maybe let's use example of countries like India. Um, cash is much bigger than bank deposits in many cases um, because they they understand the value of owning your own asset. Right. When they, when, and so this is the first thing. You, you don't own that money. The second thing is um, that when the bank becomes the legal owner of your money, they actually spend it as they wish. Um, and the way that they spend it is based upon their business model of what is you know, the maximum profit that the bank can make at the lowest risk. And so in the case of the financial crisis, you saw that the best way, you know, the, the best way of taking people's money is to lend money for property and then sell the risk on to uh, another division, right. you know, the buy side. Yep. Um, so they realized there's huge profits in taking people's money, lending to anyone that would borrow uh, backed, by, backed by the property or real estate, um, and then selling the risk on. And so that's why there's, you have these pockets and booms, because essentially what the banks are taking all of the world's you know, deposits and they're using it on the asset class that they think is you know, the maximum profit at the lowest risk. Um, and so that's why you have all these boom-bust cycles and, and pushing of uh, different asset classes. And the largest, you know, asset class that 
is constantly being pushed is, is property. Um, now, with Bitcoin, because you can actually own it, it comes with another benefit, and that is the ability to send it peer-to-peer with no one in the middle. And so once you own your money, uh, the Bitcoin attached a payment system to this technology that allows you to send it to anybody else that has a Bitcoin wallet. Um, and then when you actually send it, there's no chargeback, there's no reversal because there's nobody that owns that money. You're just sending, you know, you, you've handed cash over to someone else. And if you want to get it back, you have to fight them. Um, and that's because you can own it. So there's a cost and a benefit to that. The benefit is that you can send it anywhere in the world, censorship resistant, no central bank, no government, no intervention whatsoever. Um, and that is a, a very powerful user case of what Bitcoin does. And that can be used very negatively and very positively. Um, but so, and then the final one is, is actually the monetary policy. And this is why, you know, people have very hard time understanding why Bitcoin has value. Um, but one of the main reasons is actually the monetary policy behind it. Um, it's got a fixed supply. Um, money that you, you own, any fiat money, never has a fixed supply and, and is always increasing in supply, in fact. Yeah, by definition, um, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, which means that if you just leave your dollars at an account, now while it may go up in value relative to other currencies, depending on the government's um, decisions in those currencies, um, your purchasing power decreases by definition every time if you just leave it there. So right. um, you, you have to continually work harder or add to your dollar supply in order to make it go up in value because you have to beat inflation. Um, and and uh, so, you know, you have to add to that supply. It's um, what's known as an inflationary currency, which just means that your purchasing power goes down over time. Um the Bitcoin was designed as the exact opposite. It's a fixed money supply, um, and it's designed whereby, you know, without going too deep into the economics, we can if that becomes interesting at some point. But, yeah. Um, it, it's designed whereby uh, the, the supply never actually changes, and the way the monetary policy it released into the Bitcoin economy is that um, it, it is every four years, the number of Bitcoins released into the economy goes smaller and smaller and smaller, until it reaches the point where every 21 million Bitcoin is there. Um, because of this, it means that as long as the demand for Bitcoin, i.e. people need to use money that they own and money that they can send anywhere in the world, if that goes up, the supply doesn't change. And therefore, the only thing that can happen is the price can change to reflect the demand and supply. Um, which means the net effect is as we've now reached a point where the demand for Bitcoin is way higher than the supply that gets released. And each year it becomes more and more useful as people realize that you can build new things on top of this technology and do new things that weren't possible before. And therefore the demand keeps going up and that has, a, has an effect whereby it encourages savings. M most Bitcoiners want to spend their dollars but keep their Bitcoins. Many people want to take their dollars and put it into Bitcoin because it's a deflationary currency. And by deflationary, it means that if the value goes up over time, it can be very volatile in the short term. It's not a very good way, you know, uh, medium of exchange because of the volatility, but it's a great store of value. Um, and, and, you know, that's what really got me to invest in my first Bitcoin as a hedge against bank deposits. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I, I was really interested in storing value in something that I could own, something that I could spend with no censorship, 
and that was designed to encourage savings as a deflationary a deflationary currency. Now, governments don't want you to save. They want you to spend. They want you to borrow because that's how they increase the money supply. And if they increase the money supply, you get economic growth. So these, these two effects are baked into traditional money and um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Yes, yeah, so I like these three tenants actually quite a bit. And I want to talk a little bit more about the first one because I think it leads into the second two um, explicitly. And that is this whole concept, and I saw you trying to explain this before, but I want to dig into this a little bit deeper. The ownership of your own money. Right, it's, I think people find it really hard to understand because they don't know that when they put their money in a bank that it could potentially disappear. In the U.S., we have the FDIC insurance, right? So the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which says you put your money in a bank, it's insured up to $100,000 in any particular account. People don't really think it's going to go away. But like you said, and I want to talk about it more so people can hear it again, but this concept is that once you give – it's like if I have cash, right, and I give you $100,000 – you own it. It's like, you know, the fact that you have it in your hand means that your possession is 90% of the law, right? So you can now do with it whatever you want. And from the banking system perspective, it's not just 90% of the law. It's 100% of the law. And once you give it to them, they can do whatever they want with it. They're insured. You're not so insured, right? But how how do you explain this to people besides just the fact that it's cash? Like how are, what other assets are there that people just freely give away? And they don't think that they're giving ownership away to somebody else. I mean, there's lots of, you know, there's, there's many people that think they own gold, but really they own a paper receipt for gold. There's many right. people that think they own stock, but really they just own a paper receipt for stock with someone else's nominee. Um, and you hope that they have contingency plans in case that they disappear. Um, so, you know, there's, there's many, there's very few things. It's, 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 it's hard to find an asset that you can actually own, which is why Bitcoin gets so much attention. Um, because there's very few things you can actually own now in, in terms of the financial markets and investments. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about this concept of decentralization, right? Because I think one of the big reasons why you have, so there are a bunch of reasons why this happens, right? But the fact that you can actually own this asset is very scary, I think, to a financial system and to sort of governments that want to own everything themselves because that's the way, you, as you say, they control the economy. But they have more control over other things too, like over you in a way that is hard to explain to people because they own all the things that you think you own, right? And once that happens, it brings into question a lot of the other existing sort of systemic things that we believe in. I don't want to get too deep into you know, anarchy and craziness and all that other stuff. But decentralization, I think, really matters for people because the concept of owning your own money gets back to owning your own data and owning your own self. And I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about maybe the mechanics about how blockchain itself works as well. So without without going into hashes and, you know, mm-hmm. real technical stuff, but just how things are verified and trusted on the chain so that people can really understand better how they own it. Because here's the thing that I think about a lot, right? I go into a hospital and I get a blood test. And when I leave the hospital, the hospital kind of owns all the data that's associated with my blood test. I don't, when I leave, I leave with nothing except sort of a recommendation and maybe a prescription from a doctor. But if I go to another town, 
and have to go to another doctor. I have to repeat that process over again, and not because those doctors are silly, and not even because those two hospitals don't have a connected data system, which they might, but it's because I don't own that data. The other hospital owns it, and there may actually be a fee related to them sharing it with the other hospitals, so the process has to get repeated then so that my data can now get transferred to a new hospital. So there's f a lot of friction there and a cost that's associated with that. But in my mind... Owning your own data, so owning yourself, is almost as important as owning your own money or your store of value, too. And I'm wondering if you can sort of make an equivalency between those two things. And Sure. So, I mean, it's, it's about, you know, um, people don't understand the risk of money until it actually affects them. So the, the people in Cyprus didn't understand it until it was actually bailed in and their deposits disappeared. Right. Um, the people in Greece didn't understand it until the ATMs were shut down and they couldn't withdraw the cash and turn it into something they own. Um, the people in India didn't understand it until they had to queue outside a bank and all their life savings was becoming illegal um, pieces of paper to hold. And they had to you know, risk their life with wads of cash um, while it flushed all through the banking system so the banks can own everyone's deposits. Right. Um, you know, it's uh, the people in Mexico didn't understand it until Donald Trump started devaluing their currency by becoming president and saying really bad things about the relationship. Um, the people of Britain didn't understand it until, you know, the Brexit. Brexit and they leave 25 percent of their, you know, their deposit value in the international markets disappears. Um, so what, what tends to happen, you know, just like the, no one would listen to me until the financial crisis and then suddenly people were interested um they just don't care until they have to care and that's my biggest fear my biggest fear is that people the vast majority of people now while bitcoin is growing at, at just an incredible rate um and it's just amazing to watch um the vast majority of people won't care about bitcoin until they have to care about bitcoin so you need to give them a, a reason to actually want to own their own money um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's like this, this world that you learn as you start to dip deeper and deeper into the internet. Like the internet gave us this, you know, this ultimate freedom of a peer to peer system and a peer to peer way to communicate with people. But it was so geeky and hard to use that <laughs> companies, that companies have to build applications that put user experience and things on top of the geek, the, the, the geeky part. Um, and then you use those for convenience, but then you realize that you've lost the very element of the, of what you were doing. So, you know, you might think that you're sending a private email, but the reality is you're just giving the information to Google and right. Google give that to the government. Um, and that's being stored on their servers and this is no longer your data. Um, and, you know, I hear people say things like, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm not really doing anything wrong. I've got nothing to hide. Um, which is really missing the point because everybody's got something to hide. Um, if you didn't have anything to hide, then please can you give me right now your um, online banking details, your username, your password. Yeah, or just the key to your house. I'll take yeah. that. <laughs> if there's nothing to hide in there, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely everybody has to hide things every single day to prevent people stealing their stuff. Um, so privacy um, and control or is is something you know that essentially this battle is about. Um, the banks and the government certainly want control over your money. There's only re one reason why they don't want cash is because that you have control. Um, you know the, the the government want the ability to detect every movement 
And, you know, when, when you start to think the user experience of money, you know, try it doesn't really affect a lot of people on the ground that are sending a few dollars here and there and spending on cards. But when you travel and, and you realize you're in a, you, you go to a new country, if you don't tell your bank that you're going to that country, you get an example that you don't own your money because right. they switch your, they switch your money off until you can prove to them that you are actually that person in that country. Right. So I went um, to, I went to Italy from Japan in 2003 or 2004. I can't remember just staying in a little inn somewhere um, in Chianti and I gave them my credit card to pay my bill and they said I didn't exist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it that's was really because... bizarre for me. Mm, mm. Yeah. And, and that's simply because the, you know, they, they, they own your money and they're trying to prevent the, they implement algorithms that try to prevent, um, someone stealing your money because they're custodial to that money. Right. In other words, um, they're, they're actually trying to prevent someone from stealing their money. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, Exactly. Um, and so, you know, and then try and send, you know, a million dollars. You then start to realize, I mean, in the, in the UK, I mean, I, I live in Hong Kong now, but in the UK, if you try and send anything over $10,000, yep. Yep. Um, you, you realize that you've got a real job explaining what you're doing with that money. And, you know, you feel like a criminal, even though you're doing something completely legitimate, but you have to explain what you're doing with that money. Now, I understand why governments want that and laws have changed all around the world. And, and you know, um, but you realize how liberating it is when you can actually earn your own value. Um, when you actually transact in Bitcoin and you realize you can send and you hear that first beep, um, I, I, and it's why many people, you know, say it seems like Bitcoin's a religion. Um, it, it's a religion for a reason. It's because the, the, the experience you get when you realize that you're storing your own value, you can send that anywhere in the world. I don't care which country you're in. Um, I don't care even who you are. All I need is uh, that wallet address and it's easy as sending an email. And guess what? My, I'm encouraged to save because, uh, you know, the way the economics are designed, the value does go up over, over time in the long run. Um, it, it's, it's an incredibly liberating experience. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want dollars. I still need dollars um, to make transactions and spend every single day because I still need stable currency in the, in the geography that I'm in. Um, but I don't want to save my money in dollars. That's a very stupid decision. Yeah, because as you said, it's as an inflationary currency and every fiat currency is going to be inflationary by definition because there's always a desire to print more of it. More of it means that the value of any individual, one of them is going to be lower um, and that benefits governments as well, right? But this whole concept of owning your own money and owning your own data is something that I think is going to be super hard for most people to figure out, right? And mm. I listened with consternation a few weeks ago, I think it was Jamie Dimon, right, who's the <clears throat> who's the CEO of J.P. Morgan, but also Larry Fink, right, who's the CEO of BlackRock. I don't remember which conference they were attending, but they had this commentary that you know Bitcoin is just a, an index of money laundering, and that anybody who buys it is really stupid. And I have to spend a lot of time explaining to people why they would say that. Mm -hmm. So I get I get it, but I'm curious as to what your opinion is on that. And I, I wrote something about this actually a couple of days ago, so you can check it. But I'm just curious what your opinion is, and I'll give you mine in a second. It, it, it's very simple. It's, it's a conflict of interest. Right. So, okay. um, yeah, I mean, cause Bitcoin... here's, here's the thing is that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but here's the thing, and that is until they can, people don't understand the word disintermediation because they don't understand what an intermediary is, right? So 
until they can figure out a way to step in the middle of it and to take a bit of the vig, they won't like it. Yeah, I mean, let, let's let's face it. Um, being frank, um, I do not see Jamie Diamond or the CEO of BlackRock or the CEO of UBS as as a as a champion for anti money laundering. Not at all, actually. Um, in fact, they make a lot of money and an incredible amount of money in their business model out of taking very, very rich people's mon- um, assets and sheltering them and spreading them all around the world. And they right. charge millions and millions for that. Right. Bitcoin does that for free. That's a big problem for them. Right. That's um, my point is that until they can step in the middle, so until they figure out how they can intermediate that process – they're going to talk poorly about it. And you can see what happens when they do, right? So on the day that they said that, Bitcoin probably had a dollar value of around three-something thousand dollars. And I can't remember what it was yesterday, but it was probably double that, if not more. Yeah, so today today's actually uh, – I, I, we won't go into this because no. it is too geeky, but today is a big day in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah because, because of fork, um, yeah. The, the fork was canceled and that was a lot of uncertainty and yep. that was the, this is the end of a three-year debate really yep. um so today is a pretty big you know we've had we've had a, a an incredible year it's gone up too fast um yeah, probably. In, in, in my opinion probably. um but but then again people people try to liken this to um you know things that they understand so you know we, we get a lot of criticism that it's a ponzi scheme that it's a it's a bubble it's a tulip um I've been having that ever since I first got involved in this in 2011. You know, um, since when it when it when it was three dollars, um, everyone told me they'd miss the boat. It's too right. expensive. It's too expensive. Uh, Ten dollars the same. A hundred dollars. A thousand dollars. During the the, the one year bear market, um, everyone was saying, you know, I told you, I told you. Um, it, they say this every time. They'll say the same at ten thousand dollars. They'll say the same at a hundred thousand um, dollars. The reality is, is that Bitcoin, the invention of owning your own money, being able to spend your own money, and having a fixed money supply that can never be manipulated or changed, and having a piece of technology that everyone can build on top of that's like a bank in a box but global, um, that anyone can build fintech and financial innovation on top of. As long as that gets more useful, even if it just stays doing what it does, um, then you know it's it's that's why that's why the the price is the only indicator um, of of the utility that it's experiencing at the time. And right now, it's still in the very early adopter phase. Yeah, it's nascent, completely it's, nascent. So, twenty five million people globally, and it's an estimate, right? Sort of have some interaction with Bitcoin. Approximately 25 million people, 3.3 billion people, or three and a half billion people, approximately, are connected to the internet. That's 83 basis points. It's probably less than that of the people that could potentially use Bitcoin as a store of value, right? Now hold some or are involved in it in some way. It's just such a tiny percentage. And then, of course, cut that in half because half the world doesn't have access to the internet, right? So they can't have access to it. I kind of liken this to, you know. If everybody in the United States decided they were going to go and break into Fort Knox and take all the gold, like what would it be worth? Because all that gold is sitting there providing no value. There's a big argument about Bitcoin that it has no inherent value, right? But if everybody yeah. tries to get it, by definition, it has value. We could talk about stores of value too. Like if you want to talk about the history of that in your understanding, that would be great for me as well. Um, okay. I mean, you know, the 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 – Right now, Bitcoin is performing the role of digital gold 
is exactly. not performing it's not performing the role as, of digital cash exactly as well as it will in the future for sure um so right now i believe the majority of the money that's coming in um is is coming from more and more financial institutions high net worth individuals realizing that this is a hedge against um a financial uncertainty and a better hedge. I mean, I went, I went on a tour with uh, Jim Rogers, the, um, right. the, the famous investor, yep. um, and I, I was very proud that I managed to get him to admit that. Um, you know, his words were, you know, I, I totally believe that this is a future. Um, that you know, gold uh, is, is what I've always been been interested in. This is what I've always looked at, and it, it is a hedge against financial uncertainty. But it seems like gold is becoming a hedge against Bitcoin, um, and the, it's a it's a it's a hedge against the internet failure because um, you know Bitcoin does rely on the internet. We're putting satellites up at the moment, so the dependency isn't so big. Um, but you know, gold has kind of become a hedge against an internet failure rather than a hedge against the financial uncertainty. I am almost certain that in the next systemic risk event, the next crisis. Um, I'm just certain that Bitcoin will outperform gold by an order of magnitude. Now, what we're seeing right now and why this is such a unique situation, and I, I can't, if you can find a case study like this, then, then I haven't come across one yet. But what has happened with Bitcoin is because of the strangeness and weirdness and nuances around it, um, it doesn't really fit into any regulatory regime because it's it, it, it's got properties of commodity, it's got properties of currency, it's got properties of stock, it's got properties of technology, it's got properties of protocol. Um, and, and so regulators have to try and fit it into one of those boxes and everyone's got a different view of which one it does. The reality is, is it's completely something new we've never seen before. Um, and what that what that means is that there's massive regulatory uncertainty around Bitcoin, and this still goes on to, to you know today it really hasn't been defined exactly what it is and how it fits into the regulatory regime. Now because of that, we've had a, a, an unintended consequences that's made some a very unique situation, and that is the institutional money, Wall Street, cannot get into Bitcoin. Right until the regulatory regime is fixed. So what's been happening is, I, and I, you know, I sat down, I did a tour of over 100 money managers explaining to them Bitcoin blockchain, um, you know, with probably people, they were managing probably, I don't know, as a guess, 60% of the world's wealth. Um, and um, they were all going home and buying Bitcoin on their personal accounts. For sure. But they couldn't, they but they couldn't they do it institutionally, right? Because They couldn't do it institutionally because the regulatory regime, it doesn't fit in yet. So this is the very first time that I've known about where everybody can get in before Wall Street. Wall Street is waiting for regulations till they can get in, and we're starting to get the first sign of that. But everybody can get in before Wall Street. Once Wall Street gets in, they'll Forget create the it. ETFs, they'll get the products. Forget about but, it. But you know that that will be a ginormous sum of money, and then they'll get, and then the mass retail can get in after Wall Street because they will create the products where people can invest in their pension and and everyone else um, can 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 jump in. So right now we're still before that phase. Um, and that's the first. I think I, I, I have never seen a set of circumstances that um, that lead that that have played out like that before. Because always Wall Street is first, um, and this time they're not. They're last. Yeah. Do you, so you bring up a really interesting concept for me as well. The to- not. I mean, the regulatory environment, right? I think in most people's minds, we're kind of not brainwashed, but we're taught to believe that 
a regulated industry or regulated financial instrument is somehow safer than a non-regulated instrument. Um, what, do you, what, what do you think, though? Because I think that the financial – first of all, the SEC is a self-regulating body, right? So it, it's like you know you regulating what happens inside your own house, but your kids can convince you to change the regulations in a way. It doesn't make mm-hmm. it any safer, it seems like to me. I, I, I would agree and disagree. Um, I, I see the value in regulations. If you don't see the value, just look at ICOs right now and what's happening. Um, yeah, I, I didn't mean to say I, do, I don't see the value. I just mean that some things get regulated that don't necessarily end up being so safe regardless. But, I do, but I do see the framework, so I understand that completely. Yeah, so you know, a, a Bitcoin exchange that own, that's holding your own assets for you um, should be, you know, should have external checks and controls Absolutely. to make sure they don't lose people's assets. Absolutely. However, when the actual protocols, when you own your own asset, it does not require any regulation by design because Bitcoin was designed to be self-regulating right. by mass and code where no human can interact. And so this kind of, I think, I don't think we actually answered it, but you, you, get, you asked a question about um, the mechanics of, um, yes. you know, how you can own your own asset. And this ties into that. Um, the, the way that Bitcoin is actually, um, the way that it has is essentially um, it is created by miners, just like gold is created by miners. Um, the miners can go, you know, they can dig out of the ground and they can try and find more gold. And there's a belief about how much gold is in the world. Um, and it's kind of like a fixed supply, but it could increase. We don't know whether it's going to be more. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the where we are with the gold market. Now, Bitcoin, the difference is, is it's because it's digital, um, it's actually programmed into the original protocol that every 10 minutes, um, newly Bitcoin, new Bitcoins get created and they are rewarded to miners. And those miners, what they're doing is they're performing the role of central bank and retail bank. Essentially, what they're doing is they're in order that they're fighting with all the other miners in order to receive this reward of newly created Bitcoins. Um, and uh, what they're doing is they're download, you know, they're, they're running this, 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 this ledger um, they're performing the, the role of Visa or MasterCard, if you like. They're confirming that when I send money that I own to someone else that they own, that they have a, a record of that. And all these miners all around the world, hundreds of thousands of computers, are all doing the same thing. So that when they you, – you have – it's like the most audited system that's ever existed um, because every single miner, which is distributed all around the world, is auditing every single transaction – and if some, the only way to attack that is to actually gain control of over 50% of those computers and rig the game. Um, and that's the only way to control it. So in the very early days, this was, this was very possible. But today, just to give some context, um, Bitcoin is far and away the largest computer in the world um, by a long, long shot. Um, in fact, if you take the, the, the 500 largest computers in the world, which have been listed, um, we're talking, you know, NASA rocket science um, type computers, um, and if you multiply that by approximately, I think it's a hundred thousand now, um, you get the size of the the supercomputer that powers Bitcoin, Bitcoin, where every single miner is verifying all these transactions. And because they're distributed all around the world, um, you have to actually control 50% of them in order to rig the game. Now, statistically, that is beyond most governments now in terms of the amount you would need to invest in order to try and gain control 
of over 50% of these um, computers. Um, so we, we have this thing now, which is the most secure network. Um, it is the only version, is the only thing where we can 100% rely upon the truth because it's audited by miners all around the world and the miners are incentivized by these newly created Bitcoins that where they're, they're getting rarer and rarer and rarer and there's only ever going to be 21 million of them. Um, and then once all, and, and, and that's kind of the economics of Bitcoin. It's just this system that when I read the white paper for the first time, it, it was really, really, I mean, it's a simple white paper, but it was really hard for me to comprehend this at the time. And it, and there was, you know, there was so many times when it, it was uncertain whether this could actually become a reality over the years. But, but now we're here. This, this just, this, this can't go anywhere. What do you, you brought up ICOs a little bit, and I think that that could be a completely different show and conversation. We could talk about that for hours as well. But I'm just wondering what you think about the concept of tokenization, right, on top of Bitcoin. If you could talk about that a little bit and what that also means for sort of the transactional value of some of these newly issued coins and where you think that's going to go. So um, we're, we're going through a really interesting transition. So I, I, I invested in the first ever ICO, which was MasterCoin. And then I think after that, we had MadeSafe and then Storage. And then, Storage, yeah. And then later we had Ethereum. Um, and then Ethereum created technology that allowed anyone to create a token really easily. And then we had the ICO boom. Um, I believe that what we're going through right now is a consolidation phase. So this year we had an incredible bubble market in ICOs. Um, valuations were insane. People were raising in, in, insane amounts of money. Um, there were people all around the world that were scamming people through these ICOs. Essentially, yeah. the concept is that you you can create your own token that looks and acts a lot like Bitcoin. Um, or and uh, and then you can sell that to anyone that's willing to buy it using cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum or whatever, um, and that becomes a, a massive source of capital. And people are then you know been benefiting from the price rises and various other things. And this has created some of the most well-funded ideas in the world. Um, but the reality is, is that the human nature and what makes companies succeed never actually changes. Um, you know the, the the reality is is that so there's there's a, there's there's a good side and a bad side of this, and I'm conflicted between them all the time. Sure. The good the good side is imagine if Tim Berners Lee was around in the in the times of ICOs and he invented this World Wide Web. I know it's a stupid concept because you can't have the token without the web, but he was never rewarded like the founders of Google and Facebook and everyone. Um, but if he had a token, then he the value of that token essentially is 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 meant to track the the success and adoption of that technology. Um, and so, for people creating technology that doesn't have a business model, that doesn't have something you can sell to VCs, that doesn't have a clearly defined um, you know path to revenue. Um, ICOs changes the world for them. Um, it's the most amazing thing for creating things that don't that don't fit into the venture capital model. Right. Um, now the challenge is is that you can't control who does this stuff. Um, there are regulations popping up all around the world, and because they're centralized entities rather than decentralized, they can be controlled. Um, and so you've got lots of companies taking ideas and raising like 25 million, sometimes up to 150, 200 million. Um, now, when I first got into business, 
the worst thing you could have done to me is give me a hundred million because right. I just didn't I just didn't know how to spend that. Right. I, I I needed to learn business with a hundred with a hundred grand. It, well, first I needed to learn it by bootstrapping with nothing. Then I needed a hundred grand. Then I think after three or four years, I was ready to know how to spend a million. And then later, I was I would know how to spend ten million, a hundred million, and beyond, and think I'd do it in a reasonable way. Um, giving people with ideas a hundred million dollars is always a bad idea, and that's never going to change. Exactly. Um, <laughs> You're making me laugh so, again, but yeah. <laughs> so where does it end? Where does it go in the end? Here's where I think it goes. Um, I think it's a game-changing innovation for people creating technology that has no business model, whereby the value of your technology is reflected in the token and the adoption is reflected in the token and that completely creates a new funding model for creating open source technology with no business model that never existed before. Um, I also think that every single business in Silicon Valley and around the world that has already secured VC funding um, and can think of a model that involves a token will raise an incredible amount of money um, where they've got already proven businesses and using the process of tokenization, um, they can do things that, that, that just weren't possible before. Um, and they can raise funds that can really help them scale into the next you know, Uber or Airbnb or whatever. Um, and, and, and it's an amazing mechanism to do that. Because um, it's new money. Um, all the essentially the money is coming from all the people that made vast wealth in the crypto market. Right. Um, for the the middle bit, I am very skeptical. So for the startup, the early stage company that's using a token um, to raise funding, I think there's going to be incredible problems there. Um, and there's people around the world that are looking at this as wow. I've seen this thing called an ICO. What what business can I decentralize just to get some of the ICO money? Right, and that's kind of where it is now. So the new the newbies are all jumping in, um, and that is definitely in a dot com boom and bust cycle. Right, um, that, that that's gonna that's gonna hurt a lot of people. Um, do you yeah. think Do you think a company like Airbnb, which is heavily transactional and has use for stores of value not just locally or regionally but globally would be or should be considering issuing their own tokens regardless of whether they need the capital for expansion or technology improvement or not and if they do what's the implication on how they get paid today in other words a billions of dollars goes through the airbnb system i just picked them you can pick any large company that's transactional right yeah what do you think the implication of that would be if if Airbnb did an ICO and then use those tokens to pay for or to exchange value across their system? Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a few things. Firstly, I, I don't believe Airbnb has much to gain from that. The reason being is because uh, I think one of the reasons that they succeeded is because they tied up the merchant processing when no one else could tie it up. Um, so, you know, people trying to compete with Airbnb, they just couldn't get the merchant processing. They couldn't get what Airbnb has. So I think one of their main advantages and key success factors was the fact that they managed to get the merchant processing and ability to pay covered where other people couldn't. Um, in terms of what, what effect that would have, I think it would be very destructive to Wall Street and the IPO market if large 
IPO companies started doing ICOs and token sales, mm-hmm. um, then that would be something, another thing for the investment banks to really concern themselves with. Right. Um, and that would require them all to adjust to this, this kind of model. Um, and uh, we've already seen a few examples of public companies on a very small scale um, being involved in Bitcoin and launching their own tokens, and then their share price like goes up by what two thousand percent or something. We saw that last week, I think, uh, yeah. in London. Some company just announced that they were going to do. They just like put blockchain in their in their name, and then the price went up by two thousand percent. And we saw this actually back in nineteen ninety nine when a Texas utility said they were going to start providing internet service over their copper wires that were going to every house and the price of this some texas utility went up like 400 percent as well in a day yeah so it, it kind of depends how airbnb would want to use the token though because the, the the challenge with understanding a token is um it can be used for so many things um, right. it's not necessarily a payment method it's not necessarily it could be a reward scheme it could be anything yep. and so there's the the, the kind of the phase that, that these tokens are in at the moment is they are programmable value and programmable value can be used in many different ways it can be pegged to a traditional uh, a traditional currency um it can be used as an incentive mechanism a reward scheme um it can be used for so many different things i mean again tying back to ownership of assets like one of the theoretical examples that hasn't come about yet is essentially when you buy some music on itunes right iTunes owns your music. Right. If Apple's not there, how are you going to press play? Yeah, if, uh, and, or Google has done this plenty of times. They just stop the service and say, thank you very much for playing. But you don't, yeah. we're, we're out of that business now. Yeah. So what, you know, the ability to actually store data in a token and make the token access to that data or store it on some kind of, you know, blockchain, but have an access token means that you can actually solve the piracy problem um, in many ways because it means that if you if you if you created a token that gave you access to your music then you could sell that just as you can sell bitcoin and then the 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 actual access transfers to somebody else as opposed to right. being stored i mean and you know this is a theoretical example and and the, the 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 kind of the interesting thing that's happening right now is the entire world is now innovating on top of these protocols right and doing things with it which half the time i just think are insane <laughs> um but the, the the point is is that the the you know the you have now reached the phase where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because right. Bitcoiners and Ethereum people have made vast wealth and you've put that wealth into the hands of people that believe in a lot of these decentralized concepts. Mm-hmm. And so now, rather than having to persuade the venture capitalists or persuade Wall Street what you're doing that has very, you know, they may not have the vested interest because they invested in the incumbent that you're, disrupt, you're trying to disrupt. Exactly. Or they are the incumbent that you're trying, you're trying to, disrupt. to disrupt. Yeah. Um, then you don't need to do that anymore because now you can just there's a community that that, that are willing to chuck their, their their cryptocurrencies and wealth around into right. these tokens, um, and now it's a self-funding ecosystem, and that's why we went from you know in a very small period of time from 10 billion market cap to 200 billion market cap today, and that's what would take us to a trillion dollars and beyond with a big crash and everything in the middle, certainly. I don't see that for Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin's volatile because Bitcoin is the store of value that right. underpins this entire ecosystem. Right. And everything is traded into and out of um, um, Bitcoin. Um, so 
it's just growing the ecosystem. Um, yeah, I want to I want to make two points, or actually ask two questions, and then end because I've taken up so much of your time. But you know, you said you think that some of the things that people are doing with the tokenization is insane, and I agree. Um, and I would also make the case that at the beginnings or at the nascence of any new technology or paradigm shift, regardless of whether it's a store in value or just, you know, understanding DNA sequencing, there's going to be a lot of insane ideas around how to use it. And like you said, use this word consolidation earlier, you know, the proper uses of these things over time will consolidate into what things, the things that people actually need as opposed mm. to crazy ideas. Right. That's first of all. But second of all, I think, and please feel free to comment on that in a second. But the second thing is that one of the reasons why I brought up Airbnb as a potential is because if their business, like you said, it's very merchant payment focused, which is important, right? But to get people to understand one of the potential uses of Bitcoin in their real day-to-day life in a network that's already huge, that people are already using, where they don't need to be convinced that you know, payment methodology needs, could change. They use a credit card. They don't use cash to pay for that anyway. So there's this sort of frictionless way to pay. It would be once you get people, because I need a tipping point. I need something to change so that there's a wider adoption and people understand. Sure, Wall Street is one of them, but just getting day-to-day people to use it would make the sort of promotion of it much easier in every in the rest of everybody's day-to-day life. So those that that's that's one of the reasons why I brought up Airbnb because it's global, it's every country, it's sort of every city in the world, every big city in the world, and also regular travelers use it. People that aren't don't care about cryptocurrency or don't care about decentralization. I just thought that would be a good example of yeah. how to get it to spread more. I'm I'm not always yeah. right by the way. It's just an idea. <laughs> well, there's, there is this constant friction between decentralized versus centralized. And, um, you know, uh, kind of the, the rhetoric has been, you know, the, the blockchain is, the, is great. Bitcoin is bad. Um, and, you know, there's this, this is all a, a function of people trying to figure out where blockchain fits in. Um, and blockchain, in my, in my, in my opinion and my experience, Blockchain is only useful when it when you need decentralization. Um, and while you can shoehorn a decentralized model into a centralized model, and there may be some kind of benefits that we're, we're not seeing, um, because it's very. But the the main the invention of Bitcoin was about censorship resistance, about a system that exists outside of the financial system, and um, a, 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 you know something that does require uh, decentralization in order to be more effective. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, but, you know, I think a lot of corporates are, are looking at all their user cases and you're going to see, you're going to see how it all, how it all plays out. But I think the, the bigger thing is probably someone creating a, a decentralized Airbnb and then the two competing. And I personally, in, in that user case, I probably think the centralized one will win because it will be a lot more convenient and that there's lots of problems that come with. Um, using tokens and trying to do things in a decentralized manner, but the 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 point is that there's choice now. Just yep. as there's choice in the financial system, whether I can leave my money with a bank or I can own my own money, that's that's a choice that didn't exist, um, you know, and and it exists to a a lot lesser extent um, with cash. Yeah, I mean, the choice is: can I do I hold my money in dollars? Do I hold pounds? Do I hold euros? Or do I hold Japanese yen or Chinese yuan as well? Yeah. Um, so it's a it's an incredibly interesting time. Um, 
in terms of investment, I've been very fortunate because I because I was discussing the topic, got invited to that first Bitcoin conference in the world. Good for you, man. I've kind of I, I kind of lived through five waves, and, <laughs> and we had about we had about five waves, and and I've I've never seen five waves that, that no, kind not of this fast, right? And you know, the first one was Bitcoin, and Bitcoin produced super super high returns. It was just it was just an incredible thing to sit back and watch. Then you had altcoins and altcoins, um, tr- people trying to compete their own version of Bitcoin, and then then they created pumps and dumps, and um, but they're still on the net a, a lot higher value. Um, then you had uh, after altcoins, we we also invest in lots of equity. Um, so uh, um, we were investors in Bitfinex, Kraken, Bitstamp, some of many of the unicorns that have come out yeah. of this this Bitcoin boom. Uh, then you had the tokens and ICOs, and the most recent one um, was splits. So that now you just get paid new money for free just for holding Bitcoin. Right. Um, and and you know some people are. I mean, this year alone, I've received approximately a forty percent dividend just from owning Bitcoin as a result of people splitting the network, giving you free coins, and you exchanging them for Bitcoin. Yeah, fair enough. Well, well that feels like a great place to pause. I don't want to say end because I really don't want this to be the last time we talk about this stuff. Mm. Um, I want to thank you a ton for your time. I know it's early, but it's also been a long conversation and hopefully it's been at least as fun for you as it has been for me. Uh, certainly is. Yeah. I, I, I could talk about this a lot and then I, I do prefer speaking with new people with new perspectives rather than um often the bitcoin community we can get really geeky and, and talk <laughs> really silly things but but I'm, I'm all about real real world application real world adoption so I, I really like to take the time out to speak to people that understand the subject but um, may not be over the the um over the line yet in terms of using it absolutely so simon dixon i really want to thank you so much for your time um and uh say goodbye thank you thank you You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.